Peter Morin and Dorothy Day defined a good society as one that makes it easy for you to be good. Correlatively, a free society is one that makes it easy to be free. To be free and to live freely is to live spiritually, because only spirit is free, matter is not. To live spiritually is to live morally. The two essential properties of spirit that distinguish it from matter are intellect and will, the capacity for knowledge and moral choice, the ideals of truth and goodness. The most radical threat to living morally today is the loss of moral principles. Moral practice has always been difficult for fallen humanity, but at least there was always the lighthouse of moral principles, no matter how stormy the sea of moral practice got. But today, for the majority of our mind molders, in formal education or informal education, that is media, the light is gone. Morality is a fog of feelings. That is why to them, as Chesterton said, quote, morality is always dreadfully complicated to a man who has lost all his principles. <laughs> principles mean moral absolutes, unchanging rocks beneath the changing waves of feelings and practices. Moral relativism is the philosophy that denies moral absolutes. That philosophy is the prime suspect, public enemy number one. The philosophy that has extinguished the light in the minds of our teachers and then their students, and eventually, if not reversed, will extinguish our whole civilization. Therefore, I want not just to present a strong case against moral relativism, but to refute it, to unmask it, to strip it naked, to humiliate it, to shame it, to give it the vomit it deserves, <laughs> as they say in Texas, America's good neighbors and stuff. <laughs> How important is this issue? After all, it's just philosophy, and philosophy is just ideas. But ideas have consequences. Sometimes these consequences are as momentous as a Holocaust or a Hiroshima, sometimes even more momentous. Philosophy is just thought, but so a thought, reap an act. So an act, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. This is just as true for societies as it is for individuals. How important is the issue? The issue of moral relativism is merely the single most important issue of our age. For no society in all of human history has ever survived without rejecting the philosophy that I am about to review. There has never been a society of relativists. Therefore, our society will do one of three things either disprove one of the most universally established laws of all history, or repent of its relativism and survive, or persist in its relativism and perish. How important is the issue? C.S. Lewis says in The Poison of Subjectivism that relativism, quote, will certainly end our species and damn our souls, unquote. Please remember that Oxonians are not given to exaggeration. 
Why does he say, damn our souls? Because Lewis is a Christian, and he does not disagree with the fundamental teaching of his master, Christ, and all the prophets in his Jewish tradition, that salvation presupposes repentance. And repentance presupposes an objectively real moral flaw. Moral relativism eliminates that flaw, thus trivializes repentance, thus imperils salvation. Why does he say, end our species, and not just modern Western civilizations? Because the entire human species is becoming increasingly westernized and relativized. It is ironic that America, the primary source of relativism in the world today, is also the world's most religious nation. This is ironic because religion is to relativism what Dr. von Helsing is to Count Dracula. <laughs> Within America, the strongest opposition to relativism comes from the churches. Yet, a still further irony, according to the most recent polls, Catholics are as relativistic both in behavior and in belief as non-Catholics. 62% of evangelicals say they disbelieve in any absolute or unchanging truths. And American Jews are significantly more relativistic and more secular than Gentiles. Only Orthodox Jews, the Eastern Orthodox, and fundamentalists seem to be resisting the culture, but not by converting it, but by withdrawing from it. And that includes most Muslims, except for the tiny minority who terrorize it. When Pat Buchanan told us in 1992 that we were in a culture war, all the media laughed, sneered, and barked at him. Today, everyone knows he was right. And the culture war is most essentially about this issue. We must define our terms when we begin. Moral relativism usually includes three claims. That morality is, first of all, changeable. Secondly, subjective. And third, individual. That it is relative, first, to changing times. You can't turn back the clock. Secondly, to what we subjectively think or feel. There is nothing good or bad, but thinking makes itself. And thirdly, to individuals. Different strokes for different folks. Moral absolutism claims that there are moral principles that are unchangeable, objective, and universal. We should examine the arguments for moral relativism first and refute them to clear the way for the arguments against it. So first I will refute each of the common arguments for relativism and then relativism itself. The first argument is psychological. In practice, psychological reasons, that is, psychological causes, subjective personal motives, are usually a more powerful source of moral relativism than logical causes, that is, objective logical arguments. So we should ask, what is the main motive for preferring relativism? Since our deepest desire is for happiness, and since fears correspond to desires, it is probably the fear that moral absolutism would make us unhappy by making us feel guilty. So we call moral absolutism unloving or uncompassionate. Turned into an argument, it looks like this. Good morality has good consequences. Bad morality has bad consequences. Feelings of unhappiness and guilt are bad consequences, while feelings of happiness and self-esteem are good consequences. Moral absolutism produces the bad feelings of guilt and unhappiness, while moral relativism produces the good feelings of self-esteem and happiness. Therefore, moral absolutism is bad and moral relativism is good. 
The answer to this argument is, first of all, that absolute moral law exists not to minimize, but to maximize human happiness. And therefore, it is maximally loving and compassionate, like labels or roadmaps. You're not happy if you eat poison or drive off a cliff. But what about guilt? Removing moral absolutes does indeed remove the sense of guilt. And this sense obviously does not make you happy in the short run. But guilt, like physical pain, may be necessary to avoid greater unhappiness in the long run, if it is realistic, that is, in tune with reality and not pathological. So the question is, does reality include objective moral laws? If it does not, guilt is an experience as pointless as paranoia. But if it does, it is as proper as pain, and for a similar reason, to prevent harm. Guilt is a warning in the soul, analogous to pain as a warning in the body. The relativist argument also has a question-begging assumption. It assumes that feelings are the standard for judging morality. But the claim of traditional morality is exactly the opposite, that morality is the standard for judging feelings. Finally, if the argument from self-esteem versus guilt is correct, it logically follows that if rapists, cannibalists, terrorists, or tyrants feel self-esteem, they are better persons than if they feel guilty. That Hitler's problem was a lack of self-confidence. Some ideas are beyond the need for reputation, except in universities. <laughs> A second argument for relativism is the argument from cultural relativism. This argument seems irrevocable. The claim is that anthropologists and sociologists have discovered moral relativism to be not a theory, but an empirical fact. Different cultures and societies, like different individuals, simply do, in fact, have very different moral values. In Eskimo culture and in Holland, killing old people is right. In America, east of Oregon, it's wrong. <laughs> in contemporary culture, fornication is right. In Christian cultures, it's wrong, and so forth. Descartes noted in the Discourse on Method that there is no idea so strange that some philosopher has not seriously taught it. <laughs> Similarly, there is no practice so strange that some society has not legitimized it. For instance, genocide or cannibalism. Or so innocent that some group has not forbidden it. For instance, entering a temple with a hat on or without one. So anyone who thinks values are not relative to cultures is simply ignorant of facts. So goes the argument. To see the logical fallacy in this apparently impregnable argument, we need to look at its unspoken assumption, which is that moral rightness is a matter of obedience to cultural values that it is right to obey your culture's values. Always. Only if we combine that hidden premise with the stated premise that values differ with cultures can we get the conclusion that moral rightness differs with cultures, that what is wrong in one culture is right in another. But surely this hidden premise begs the question. It presupposes the very moral relativism it is supposed to prove. The absolutist denies that it is always right to obey your culture's values. He has a transcultural standard by which he can criticize a whole culture's values. That is why he can be a progressive and a radical, while a relativist can only be a status quo conservative, having no higher standard than his culture, by country right or wrong. 
only massive media big lie propaganda could so confuse people's minds that they spontaneously think the opposite. But in fact, it is only the believer in the old-fashioned natural moral law who can be a social radical and a progressive. He alone can say to a Hitler or a Saddam Hussein, you and your whole social order are wrong and wicked and deserve to be destroyed. The relativist can only say, different strokes for different folks, and I happen to hate your strokes and prefer mine, that's all. The second logical weakness of the argument about cultural relativism is its equivocation on the term values. The moral absolutist distinguishes subjective opinions about values from objectively true values. Just as he distinguishes objective truth from subjective opinions about God, or about life after death, or about happiness, or about numbers, or about beauty, just to take five other non-empirical things. It may be difficult or even impossible to prove these things, or to attain certainty about them, or even to know them at all. But that does not mean that they are unreal. Even if these things could not be known, it does not follow that they are unreal. And even if they could not be known with certainty, it does not follow that they could not be known at all by right opinion. And even if they could not be proved, it does not follow that they could not be known with certainty. And even if they could not be proved by the scientific method, it does not follow that they cannot be proved at all. They could be real, even if unknown. Known, even if not certainly known. Certainly known, even if not proved. And proved, even if not scientifically proved. The basic equivocation in the cultural relativist argument is between values and value opinions. Different cultures may have different opinions about what is morally valuable, just as they may have different opinions about what happens after death. But this does not entail the conclusion that what is really right in one culture is really wrong in another, any more than different opinions about life after death entails the conclusion that different things really happen after death, depending on cultural beliefs. Just because I may believe there is no hell does not prove that there is none and that I will not go there. If it did, the simple and infallible way of salvation would be simply to stop believing in hell. <laughs> Similarly, just because a good Nazi thinks genocide is right does not prove it is, unless there is nothing good or bad but thinking makes it so. But that is the relativist conclusion. It cannot also be his premise without begging the question. There is still another error in the cultural relativist argument. It seems that just about everything that can possibly go wrong with an argument goes wrong with this one. The argument from facts doesn't even have its facts right. Cultures do not, in fact, differ totally about values, even if the term values is taken to mean merely value opinions. No culture has ever existed which believed and taught what Nietzsche called for a transvaluation of all values. There have been differences in emphasis. For instance, our ancestors valued courage more than we do, while we value compassion more than they did. But there has never been anything like the relativism of opinions about values that the relativist teaches as factual history. Just imagine what that would be like. Try to imagine a society where justice, honesty, courage, wisdom, hope, and self-control were deemed morally evil. An unrestricted selfishness, cowardice, lying, betrayal, addiction, and despair were deemed morally good. Such a society is never found on Earth. If it exists anywhere, it is only in hell and its colonies. Only Satan and his worshippers say, Ye will be thou my good. 
There are indeed important disagreements about values between cultures. But beneath all disagreements about lesser values, there always lies an agreement about more basic ones. Beneath all disagreements about applying values to situations, for instance, should we have capital punishment or not, always lies agreement about values. For instance, murder is evil since human life is good. Moral disagreements between cultures as well as between individuals would be impossible unless there were some deeper moral agreements, some common moral premises. Moral values are to a culture's laws something like what concepts are to words. When you visit a foreign country, you experience an initial shock. The language sounds totally different. But then, beneath the different words, you find common concepts. And this is what makes translation from one language to another possible. Analogously, beneath different social laws, we find common human moral laws. We find similar morals in different mores. The moral agreement among Moses, Buddha, Confucius, Lao Tzu, Socrates, Solomon, Jesus, Cicero, Muhammad, Zoroaster, and Hammurabi is far greater than their moral differences. A third argument for relativism is similar to the second, but is more psychological than anthropological. This argument is also supposedly based on a scientifically verifiable fact. The fact is that society conditions values in us. If we had been brought up in a Hindu society, we would have had Hindu values. The origin of values thus seems to be human minds themselves, parents and teachers, rather than something objective to human minds. And what comes from human subjects is, of course, subjective, like the rules of baseball, even though they may be public and universally agreed to. This argument, like the previous one, also confuses values with value opinions. Perhaps society conditions value opinions in us, but that does not mean society conditions values in us, unless values are nothing but value opinions, which is precisely the point at issue, the conclusion. So the argument again begs the question. There is also a false assumption in this argument. The assumption is that whatever we learn from society must be subjective. That is not true. We learn the rules of baseball from society, but we also learn the rules of multiplication. The rules of baseball are subjective and man-made. The rules of multiplication are not. Of course, the language systems in which we express any rules are always man-made. But the human mind creates rather than discovers the rules of baseball, but the mind discovers rather than creates the rules of multiplication. So the fact that we learn any given law or value from our society does not prove that it is subjective. Finally, even the expressed premise of this argument is not fully true. Not all value opinions are the result of social conditioning. For if they were, then there could be no non-conformity to society based on moral values. There could be only rebellions of force rather than of principle. But in fact, there are many principled non-conformists. These people did not derive their values only from their society, since they disagree with their society about values. So the, so the existence of moral nonconformists is empirical proof of the presence of some trans-social origin of values. A fourth argument is that moral relativism alone guarantees freedom, while moral absolutism threatens freedom. People often wonder how they can be truly free if they are not free to create their own values. 
Indeed, our own Supreme Court has declared that we have a fundamental right to define the meaning of existence. This is either the most fundamental of all rights, if it is right, or the most fundamental of all follies, if it is wrong. This is either the wisest or the stupidest thing the court has ever written. <laughs> this was the Casey decision. Please remember what Casey did in Casey and the Bad. <laughs> the most effective reply to this argument is often an anomaly. Say to the person who demands the right to be free to create his own values that you too demand that right and that the value system that you choose to create is one in which his opinions have no value at all. <laughs> or a system in which you are God and rightly demand total obedience from everyone else. He will quickly protest in the name of truth and justice, thus showing that he really does believe in these two objective values after all. If he does not do this, if he protests merely in the name of his alternative value system, which he has created, then his protest against your selfishness and megalomania is no better than your protest against his justice and truth. And then the argument can only come down to brute force. And that is hardly a situation that guarantees freedom. A second refutation of the relativist argument for freedom is that freedom cannot create values because freedom presupposes values. Why does freedom presuppose values? Well, first, because the relativist argument that relativism guarantees freedom must assume freedom is really valuable, thus assuming at least that one objective value. Second, if freedom is really good, it must be freedom from something really bad, thus assuming some objective good and bad. And third, the advocate of freedom will almost always insist that freedom be granted to all, not just some thus presupposing the real value of equality, or the golden rule. But the simplest refutation of the argument about freedom is experience. Experience teaches us that we are free to create alternative mores, like socially acceptable rules for speech, or clothing, or eating, or driving. But it also teaches us that we are not, in fact, free to create alternative morals, like making murder, or rape, or treason right or making charity or justice wrong. We can no more create a new fundamental moral value than we can create a new primary color, or a new arithmetic, or a new universe. Never happened, never will. And if we could, if we could create new values, they would no longer be moral values. They would be just arbitrarily invented rules of the game. We would not feel bound in conscience by them, or guilty when we transgress them. If we were free to create thou shalt murder or thou shalt not murder, as we are free to create thou shalt play nine innings or thou shalt play only six innings, then we would feel no more guilty about murder than about playing six innings. As a matter of fact, we all do feel bound by some fundamental moral values, like justice and the golden rule. We experience our freedom of will to choose to obey or disobey them, but we also experience our lack of freedom to change them into their opposites. We cannot creatively make hate good or love evil. Try it. You just can't do it. All you can do is refuse the whole moral order. You cannot make another one. You can choose to rape, but you cannot experience a moral obligation to rape. A fifth argument, equally common today, is that moral relativism is tolerant, while absolutism is intolerant. 
Tolerance is one of the few non-controversial values today. Nearly everyone in our society accepts it. So it is a powerful selling point for any theory or practice that can claim it. What of relativism explained to tolerance? Well, I see no less than eight fallacies in this popular argument. First, let us be clear what we mean by tolerance. Tolerance is a quality of people, not of ideas. And ideas can be confused, or fuzzy, or ill-defined, but that does not make them tolerant or intolerant, any more than clarity or exactness could make them intolerant. If a carpenter tolerates three sixteenths of an inch deviation from plumbing, he is three times more tolerant than one who tolerates only one sixteenth of an inch, but he is no less clear. One teacher may tolerate no dissent from his fuzzy and ill-defined views, a Marxist would say, while another, say Socrates, may tolerate much dissent from his clearly defined views. Second, the relativist claim is that absolutism, belief in universal, objective, and unchanging moral laws, fosters intolerance of alternative views. But in the sciences, nothing like this has been the case. The sciences have certainly benefited and progressed remarkably because of tolerance of diverse and heretical views. Yet science is not about subjective truths, but about objective truths. Therefore, objectivism does not necessarily cause intolerance. Third, the relativists may further argue that absolutes are hard and unyielding, and therefore the defender of them will also be hard and unyielding. But this is another known sequitur. One may teach hard facts in a soft way, or soft opinions in a hard way. Fourth, the simplest refutation of the tolerance argument is its very premise. It assumes that tolerance is really, objectively, universally, absolutely good. If the relativist replies that he is not presupposing the objective value of tolerance, then all he is doing is demanding the imposition of his subjective personal preference for tolerance. And that is surely more intolerant than the appeal to an objective, universal, impersonal moral law. If no moral values are absolute, neither is tolerance. The absolutist can take tolerance far more seriously than the relativist. It is absolutism, not relativism, that fosters tolerance. And, fifth fallacy, it is relativism that fosters intolerance. Why not be intolerant? He has no answer to this. Because tolerance feels better? Or because it is the popular consensus? Well, suppose it no longer feels better. Suppose it ceases to be popular. The relativist can appeal to no moral law as a dam against the flood of intolerance. We desperately need such a dam, because societies, like individuals, are fickle and fallen. What else will deter a humane and humanistic Germany from turning to an inhumane Nazi philosophy of racial superiority? Or a now-tolerant America from turning to a future intolerance against any group it decides to disenfranchise? It is unborn babies today, born babies tomorrow. Homophobes today, perhaps homosexuals tomorrow. The same absolutism that homosexuals usually fear because it is not tolerant of their behavior is their only secure protection against the intolerance of their persons. Sixth fallacy. An examination of the essential meaning of the concept of tolerance reveals a presupposition of moral objectivism. For we do not tolerate goods. We only tolerate evils in order to prevent worse evils. 
a patient will tolerate the nausea brought on by chemotherapy in order to prevent death by cancer. And a society will tolerate bad things like smoking in order to preserve good things like privacy and freedom. Seventh, the advocate of tolerance faces a dilemma when it comes to cross-cultural tolerance. Most cultures throughout history have not put a high value on tolerance. In fact, some have even thought it a moral weakness. Should we tolerate this intolerance? If so, if we should tolerate intolerance, then the tolerance objectivist had better stop bad-mouthing the Spanish Inquisition. But if we should not tolerate intolerance, why not? Because tolerance is really good, and the Inquisition was really evil, in that case we are presupposing a universal and objective transcultural value. What if instead, he says, it is only because of our consensus for tolerance? But history's consensus is against it. Why impose ours? Is that not culturally intolerant? Finally, there is a logical known sequitur in the relativist argument too. Even if the belief in absolute moral values did cause intolerance, it does not follow that such values are not real. The belief that the cop on the beat is sleeping may cause a mugger to be intolerant to his victims, but it does not follow that the cop is not asleep. Thus, there are no less than eight weaknesses in the tolerance argument. A sixth and final argument for relativism is that situations are so diverse and complex that it seems unreasonable and unrealistic to hold the universal moral norms. Even killing can be good if war is necessary for peace. Even theft can be good if you steal a weapon from a madman. Even lying can be good if you're a Dutchman lying to the Nazis about where you're hiding the Jews. The argument is essentially this. Morality is determined by situations, and situations are relative, therefore morality is relative. A closely related argument can be considered together with this one, that morality is relative because it is determined by motive. We all blame someone for trying to murder another, even though the deed is not successfully accomplished, simply because its motive is bad. But we do not hold someone morally guilty of murder for accidentally killing another. For instance, by giving sugary candy to a child he has no way of knowing is seriously diabetic. So the argument is essentially that morality is determined by motive, and motive is subjective, therefore morality is subjective. So both the situationist and the motivationist conclude against moral absolutes. The situationist, because he finds all morality relative to the situation. The motivationist, because he finds all morality relative to the motive we reply with a common sense distinction. Morality is indeed conditioned or partly determined by both situations and motives, but it is not wholly determined by situations or motives. Traditional common sense morality involves three moral determinants, three factors that influence whether a specific act is morally good or bad. The nature of the act itself, the situation, and the motive. Or what you do, when, where, and how you do it, and why you do it. It is true that doing the right thing in the wrong situation or for the wrong motive is not good. Making love to your wife is a good deed, but doing so when it is medically dangerous is not. The deed is good, but not in that situation. Giving money to the poor is a good deed, but doing it just to show off is not. The deed is good, but the motive is not. However, there must first be a deed before it can be qualified by subjective motives or relative situations. And that is surely a morally relevant factor too. 
A good life is like a good work of art. A good work of art requires all its essential elements to be good. For instance, a good story must have a good plot and good characters and a good theme. So a good life requires you to do the right thing, the act itself, and have a right reason or motive, and that you do it in the right way. Situation. Furthermore, situations, though relative, are objective, not subjective. And motives, though subjective, come under moral absolutes. They can be recognized as intrinsically and universally good or evil. The will to help is always good. The will to harm is always evil. So even situationism is an objective morality, and even motivationism or subjectivism is a universal morality. The fact that the same principles must be applied differently to different situations presupposes the validity of those principles. Moral absolutists need not be absolutistic about applications to situations. They can be flexible. But a flexible application of a standard presupposes not just a standard, but a rigid standard. If the standard is as flexible as the situation, it is no standard at all. If the yardstick with which you measure the length of a twisting alligator is as twisting as the alligator, you cannot measure with it. Yardsticks have to be rigid. And moral absolutists need not be judgmental about motives, only about means. When Jesus said, judge not, that you be not judged, he surely meant, do not claim to judge hearts and motives, which only God can know. He certainly did not mean, do not claim to judge deeds. Do not morally discriminate, bullying from defending, killing from healing, robbery from charity. In fact, it is only the moral absolutist and not the relativist who can condemn judgmentalism of motive. Just as he alone can condemn intolerance, the relativist can condemn only moral absolutism. But merely refuting the most popular arguments for relativism does not refute relativism itself. We need positive arguments for absolutism as well. Here are five simple ones. First, the pragmatic argument from consequences. If the relativist argues against absolutism from its supposed consequences of intolerance, we can argue against relativism from its real consequences. Consequences are at least a relevant indicator. They are clues. Good morality should have good consequences, and bad morality should have bad ones. Well, it's exceedingly obvious that the main consequence of moral relativism is the removal of moral deterrence. Just as the consequences of do the right thing are doing the right thing, so the consequences of if it feels good, do it, are doing whatever feels good. Takes no PhD to see that. In fact, it takes a PhD to miss it. <laughs> All immoral deeds and attitudes, with the possible exception of envy, feel good. That's the main reason we do them. If sin didn't seem like fun, we'd all be saints. <laughs> relativism has never produced a saint. That is the pragmatic refutation of relativism. The same goes for societies. Relativism has never produced a good society. We'll be back. Compare the stability, longevity, and happiness of societies founded on the principles of moral relativists like Mussolini and Mao Zedong with societies founded on the principles of moral absolutists like Moses and Confucius. A society of moral relativists usually lasts one generation. The first thousand-year right lasted not even that long. I think the following quotation should be sent to the U.S. Supreme Court, the ACLU, 
the National Teachers Association, Hollywood, and all network TV executives. Quote, everything I have said and done in these last years is relativism by intuition. From the fact that all ideologies are of equal value, that all ideologies are mere fictions, the modern relativist infers that everybody has the right to create for himself his own ideology and to attempt to enforce it with all the energy of which he is capable. If relativism signifies contempt for fixed categories and men who claim to be the bearers of an objective immortal truth, then there is nothing more relativistic than fascism. Quote the Negro Mussolini. Second, the argument from tradition. This argument should appeal to egalitarians who argue against absolutism because they think it is somehow connected with snobbery. It's exactly the opposite. Absolutism is traditional morality, and tradition is egalitarianism extended into history. Chesterton called it the democracy of the dead. The extension of the franchise to that most powerless of classes, those disenfranchised not by accident of birth, but by accident of death. Tradition counters the small and arrogant oligarchy of the living, those who just happen to be walking around the planet today. To be a relativist, you must be a snob, at least on this centrally important issue, for you stand in a tiny minority, almost totally concentrated in one culture, the modern West, that is, white, democratic, industrialized, urbanized, university-educated, secularized, apostate, post-Christian society. <laughs> to be a relativist, you must believe that nearly all human beings in history have ordered their lives by an illusion. Even in societies like ours that are dominated by relativistic experts, popular opinion still tends to moral absolutism. Like communists, relativists pretend to be the party of the people while in fact scorning the people's philosophy. In fact, for a generation now, a minority of relativistic elitists who have gained the power of the media have been relentlessly imposing their elitist relativism on popular opinion by accusing popular opinion, that is traditional morality, of elitism. Third, there is the argument from moral experience. This is the simplest and, I think, strongest argument for moral absolutism. In fact, it's so strong that it seems like an unnatural strain to put it into the form of an argument at all. It is more like primary data. The first and foundational moral experience is always absolutistic. Only later in the life of the individual or the society does sophistication sometimes suggest moral relativism. Every one of us remembers from early childhood experience what it feels like to be morally obligated, to bump up against an unyielding moral wall. This memory is enshrined in the words ought, should, right, and wrong. Mm -hmm. Moral absolutism is certainly based on experience. For instance, let's say last night you promised your friend you would help him at 8 o'clock this morning, let's say he has to move his furniture before noon. But you are up till 3 a.m., and when the alarm rings at 7, you are very tired. You experience two things, the desire to sleep and the obligation to get up. The two are generically different. You experience no obligation to sleep and no desire to get up. You are moved in one way by your own desire for sleep, and you are moved in a very different way by what you think you ought to do. Your feelings appear from the inside out, so to speak while your conscience appears from the outside in. Within you is the desire to sleep, and this may move you to the external need of shutting off the alarm and breathing back to bed. 
But if instead you get up to fulfill your promise to your friend, it will be because you chose to respond to a very different kind of thing, the perceived moral quality of the deed of fulfilling your promise, as opposed to the perceived moral quality of the deed of refusing to fulfill it. What you perceive as right or obligatory, getting up, pulls you from without, from itself, from its own nature. But the desires you feel as attractive, going back to sleep, push you from within, from yourself, from your own nature. The moral obligation moves you as an end, as a final cause, from above and ahead, so to speak. Your desires move you as a source, as an efficient cause, from below or behind, so to speak. All this is primary data, fundamental moral experience. It can be denied, but only as some strange philosophies might deny the reality immediately perceived by our senses. Moral relativism is to moral experience what the teaching of Christian science is to the experience of pain and sickness and death. It tells us these experiences are illusions to be overcome by faith. Moral absolutism is empirical. Moral relativism is a dogma of faith. Fourth, there is the ad hominem argument. Even the relativist always reacts to the moral protest when he is treated immorally. The man who appeals to the relativistic principle of I gotta be me to justify breaking his promise of fidelity to his own wife, whom he wants to leave for another woman, will then break his fidelity to his relativistic principle when his new wife uses that principle to justify leaving him for another man. This is not exceptional, but typical. It looks like the origin of relativism is more personal than philosophical, more in the hypocrisy than in the hypothesis. The contradiction between theory and practice is evident even in the relativist's act of teaching relativism. Why do relativists teach and write? To convince the world that relativism is right and absolutism wrong? Really right and really wrong? If so, then there is a real right and a real wrong. <laughs> and if not, then there is nothing wrong with being an absolutist, and nothing right with being a relativist. So why do relativists write and teach? Really, for all the effort they put into preaching their gospel of delivering humanity from the false and foolish repressions of absolutism, one would have thought they really believed this gospel. <laughs> Fifth, there's the argument from moral language. This is a very obvious argument used by C.S. Lewis at the very beginning of mere Christianity. It is based on the observation that people quarrel. They do not merely fight, they argue about right and wrong. This is to act as if they believed in objectively real and universally binding moral principles. If nothing but subjective desires and passions were involved, it would be merely a contest of strength between competing persons or between competing passions within a person. If I'm more hungry than tired, I'll eat. If I'm more tired than hungry, I'll sleep. But we say things like, that isn't fair, or what right do you have to that? If relativism were true, moral argument would be as stupid as arguing about feelings. I feel great. No, I feel terrible. In fact, the moral language that everyone uses every day language that praises, blames, counsels, or commands would be strictly meaningless if relativism were true. We do not praise or blame non-moral agents like machines. When the Coke machine steals our money without delivering a Coke, we do not argue with it, call it a sinner, or tell it to go to confession. 
we kick it. <laughs> so when some of our psychologists tell us that we are only very complex machines, they are telling us that morality is only very complex kicking. This is so absurd, it hardly deserves an argument. I think it deserves a spanking. Which is only practicing what they preach. Kicking, but more honestly. The argument is that moral language is meaningful, not meaningless. We all know that. We know how to use it, and we do. Relativism cannot explain that fact. Finally, most importantly of all, my postscript. What is the cause and cure of moral relativism? The real source of moral relativism is not any argument at all. And therefore, its cure is not any refutation of an argument. Neither philosophy, nor science, nor logic, nor common sense, nor experience have ever refuted traditional moral absolutism. It is not reason, but the abdication of reason that is the source of moral relativism. Relativism is not rational. It is rationalization. It is not the conclusion of a rational argument. It is the rationalization of a prior passion. It is the repudiation of the principle that passions must be evaluated by reason and controlled by will. That is the virtue Plato and Aristotle called self-control. It is not just one of the cardinal virtues, but a necessary ingredient in every virtue. That classical assumption is almost the definition of civilization. But romanticists, existentialists, Freudians, and many others have convinced many people in our culture that it is oppressive and unhealthy and inauthentic. If we embrace the opposite principle and let passion govern reason, rather than reason govern passion, there is little hope for morality or for civilization. Obviously, the strongest and most attractive of the passions is sexual passion. It is therefore also the most addictive and the most blinding. So there could hardly be a more powerful undermining of our moral knowledge and our moral life than the sexual revolution. Already, the demand for sexual freedom has overridden one of nature's strongest instincts, motherhood. A million mothers a year in America alone pay hired killers or cold dealers or physicians to kill their own unborn daughters and sons. How could this happen? Only because abortion is driven by sexual motives. For abortion is back up birth control. And birth control is the demand to have sex without having babies. If storks brought babies, there'd be no land parenthood. Divorce is a second example of the power of the sexual revolution to undermine basic moral principles. Suppose there were some other practice, not connected to sex, which had these three documentable results. First, betraying the person you claimed to love the most, the person you had pledged your life to, betraying your solemn promise to her or him. Second, thereby abusing the children you had procreated and promised to protect, scarring their souls more deeply than anything else except direct violent physical abuse and making it far more difficult for them ever to attain happy lives or marriages. And thirdly, thereby harming, undermining, and perhaps destroying your society's future. Would not such a practice be universally condemned? Yet that is exactly what divorce is, and it is universally Betrayal is universally condemned unless it is sexual. Justice, honesty, not doing others harm, these moral principles are affirmed unless they interfere with sex. The rest of traditional morality is still very widely believed and taught, even in TV sitcoms, soap operas, and Hollywood movies. The driving force of moral relativism in our culture seems to be almost exclusively sexual. 
why this should be and what we should do about it are two further questions that demand much more time and thought than we have available here and now. But if you want a very short guess and an answer to both, here is the best I can do. I think a secularist has only one substitute left for God, only one experience in a desacralized world that still gives him something like the mystical, self-transcending thrill of ecstasy that God designed all souls to have forever and to long for until they have it. Unless he is a surfer, that experience has to be sex. We're designed for more than happiness. We're designed for joy. Aquinas writes with simple logic, man cannot live without joy. That is why one deprived of true spiritual joys must go over to carnal pleasures. Drugs and alcohol are attractive because they claim to feed the same need. They lack the ontological greatness of sex, but they provide the same semi-mystical thrill, the transcendence of reason and self-consciousness. I do not mean this merely as moral condemnation, but as psychological analysis. In fact, though it may sound shocking, I think the addict is closer to the deepest truth than the mere moralist. He's looking for the very best thing in some of the very worst places. His demand for a state in which he transcends morality is very wrong, but it's also very right. For we are designed for something beyond morality, something in which morality will be transformed, mystical union with God. Sex is a sign and appetizer of that. Moral absolutists must never forget that morality, though absolute, is not ultimate. It is not our summum bonum. Sinai is not the promised land. Jerusalem is. And in the New Jerusalem, what finally happens as the last chapter of human history is a wedding between the Lamb and his bride. Deprived of this Jerusalem, we must buy into Babylon. If we do not worship God, we will worship idols, for we are by nature worshipers. Finally, what is the cure? It must be stronger medicine than philosophy. So I can give you only three words in answer to this last and most practical question of all. What we can do about it. What is the cure? These three words are totally unoriginal, 